Father, as we look in your word again this morning, I pray that your spirit would make real to us, each one of us, just the things we need to hear from you. And then help us be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in John 4 again this morning. Um, remember we finished a conversation with a woman at the well. And then the whole town in Samaria came out and chatted with Jesus. And he had this two or three day diversion in Samaria. He was headed from Judea, just back up to his hometown area in Galilee, up in the north. He ended up staying in Samaria for a couple of days, talked to a woman. The town received him. And now in the few brief verses we're looking at today, verses 43 through 45, Jesus starts his journey back to Galilee. John 4, 43, after the two days he went forth from there into Galilee for or because Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, this, the phrase, uh, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country, in this context is a little problematic as far as understanding what this means. Um, who doesn't honor him here in the context? Is he not honored in Judea? Is Judea his own country? Or is he not honored in Galilee? Is Galilee his own country here as mentioned in verse 44? Commentators are divided on this. It's problematic in John's context. He was successful in Judea in the south. If you remember earlier in John, it said he was baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's followers are concerned because everybody's going to Jesus. He was successful in the south. But here too it says the Galileans were receiving him also because many of them had been in the south, had heard and seen him, and they're ready to receive him now back in their own neighborhood. So what's the answer? Who here is rejecting him in John's context? It's not entirely clear. Uh, let me read to you, though, from Matthew 13. This is a parallel passage. And this phrase, or a variation of it, is in each of the four Gospels. I'm going to read briefly the passage from Matthew's Gospel, though. Matthew 13, uh, 50, I think it's 4 through 56. It says, Coming to his hometown, Nazareth, he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? In other words, is this not just the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. If John's passage is parallel, as it seems to be, the folks that are rejecting him are in his own town, in Nazareth. In fact, uh, they attempt to kill him when he reads the uh, passage out of Isaiah and says that they apply to him. So they take offense at him. Who takes offense? The folks in his very hometown. Mark 6 says a prophet is... Uh, Mark 6 verse 4 says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And Luke 4.24 says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. So in each case, 
we've got this phrase that a prophet has honor except at home or except in his hometown. Uh, what does this mean anyway? Uh, fairly clear that a prophet who in Israel, of course, would normally have esteem and honor, a prophet, a spokesman of God, would have honor except among those who knew him best or knew him longest. Everyone else would esteem this person except those who thought they knew him best. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about two tendencies we have. And I'm kind of, this is when you take a passage like I'm doing this morning. Some people say if you take a verse out of context, it's a pretext. Do you know what I, where I'm going with this? I'm, this is a diving board this morning. This verse, we're, we're jumping out of John. We're, we're, we're swimming in lakes that have nothing to do with the rest of this passage. But as I was praying about it, especially at this season, I thought this is where I needed to go. So we're going to talk about from this passage, we're diving off into this issue about honor. Who do we honor and who do we not honor? And we have, we tend to have two tendencies. We either undervalue and underestimate people that we know or we think we know, or we overvalue and overestimate people that we know or think we know. We're going to start with the first, to underestimate. We tend to take those things and people for granted that we think we know, that we think we know. Let me give you some examples from the scriptures. I'm just going to summarize some brief stories. Genesis 37. You remember Joseph, Joseph in the varied colored coat? Joseph, son of Jacob. Israel, Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons. And that did not sit well with the other brothers. And remember, too, he's the baby of the family at this point until Benjamin comes along. He's kid brother to every other of the patriarchs, right? So Joe gets up one morning and tells the brothers who don't like him already because he's dad's favorite, he tells them that he had a dream in which they all are a sheaf, you know, grain stacked up together in a field, and all their sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. That sounds good, Sean, from baby brother, doesn't it? Sure. So they said, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. <clears throat> baby brother Joe ruling over me? I don't think so. But in fact, of course, the story of Joseph, one of the better known stories of the Old Testament, they do bow down to little Joe. They do bow down to little brother Joseph because... Through their selling Joseph into slavery, God degrades him first, takes him down, and then raises him up so that he's second only to Pharaoh in Egypt so that Joseph could become a savior for Jacob and Jacob's household. Joseph would be a savior. But when he's telling this to his older brothers, I mean, they hated him before. You know, and after this, of course, they sell him. They couldn't look at little brother and think that God could actually use this guy as their better or their superior, but he did. He did. They couldn't see it. 1 Samuel 17, uh, David, young David, remember too, he's junior league in his family. He's the littlest guy, you remember, the youngest. In fact, when Samuel tells Jesse to march his sons in front of him because a king is among them, Jesse doesn't even call David. He's not even there. Samuel sees Eliab, the, the oldest, the best looking, the strongest, and says, that's got to be him. This is the famous passage in which said, God says through Samuel, no, Samuel, men look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He's not it. 
Little David, little brother out in the field with the sheep, he's my man. So, little David in 1 Samuel 17 has been sent by Jesse, Father Jesse, with food and drink to his brothers who are with the army with Saul. And they're separated by a valley between they and the armies of the Philistines and a nasty giant called Goliath. Well, little David comes up and he sees, he hears Goliath and he's asking the guys around, what's going on here? And they tell him, boy, this giant, if somebody could just whoop him and turn him around the other way, King Saul would bless them and you know, make their family exempt from taxes in Israel and all. And David's going around saying, is this really true? Asking one another. And older brother Eliab hears him and says, Eliab's anger burned against David and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? And you ought to be back home. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. And David said, what, what have I done? It was just a question. Can you see this? Older brother is reaming him out on his case. Now, did Eliab really know David's heart, number one? No, he didn't. We don't know our own hearts most of the time. Eliab didn't know. This was absolutely untrue. He didn't know why David was there. And if we had told him right then, your little brother is about to slay that giant and become the military leader in Israel and become the archetypical king for Israel in all the ages to come, what would Eliab have said to that? He couldn't have taken it in, could he? See, because to him, David is just little brother who belongs at home, taking care of those few sheep. In Eliab's eyes, David is just little brother. In God's economy, David is the first great king of Israel and the picture of kingly perfection for every king after him. In fact, if you read the stories in First and Second Kings, you'll see that every king is compared to David. And it's not because he was perfect, but it was because, as God says, he was a man after God's own heart. And so in God's economy, little brother becomes king David, King David. In John 7, back closer to our context, in John 7, which we'll look at in more detail later, uh, it says at verse 2, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was at hand. His brothers, Jesus' brothers, that we read about in Matthew, said to him, depart from here, go down into Judea, that your disciples may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. They're they're just razzing him. You want to be known? Well, go on down there, bud. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. They don't believe that older brother is anything special. He's just older brother. We don't know what they know at this point or what they've even been told. But to them... Jesus is just older brother who now all of a sudden wants to be known through Israel. He's just seeking a name for himself. So they razz him about it. Well, go on down there. You want everyone to know you, so go on down there to the feast. They don't believe. In their eyes, Jesus is just older brother. No one special. In each case, in each of these biblical stories, the relative of someone chosen by God to do an important work and and assume an important role was minimized and rejected by those who knew them best. This is the case each time. And these aren't, I mean, there's obviously other stories we could use too. Now, if you're like me, and most of you are, 
if you're old enough to have grown up to at least young adulthood, and especially if you had siblings, or even if you didn't have siblings, if you had friends, maybe younger friends or younger siblings, do you look back sometimes and think of the things you said or did to your younger siblings or younger friends and cringe with embarrassment at what you did to someone else? I do. I'm so embarrassed of what I did to my younger brother. It's, it's painful when I think about it today. See, and <clears throat> the reason we did those things, apart from just a totally sinful heart, is that we didn't esteem them. To us, they were insignificant. They were just little brother, or they were just the kid down the block, or whatever. See, we didn't value them the way God valued them. We saw them as insignificant. <clears throat> we didn't have a full or a full enough appreciation for the person they were and the person they were becoming, so we didn't see things as God did. Now, sometimes we underestimate those we grow up with or those folks we raise or have known for a long time. We think that we know them so well that we define in our own minds who they are and who they are not and what they can do, and what they cannot do, and what they deserve, and what they do not deserve. Now, this doesn't necessarily reflect reality at any level, but in our mind, that's what we do. And I would suggest, primarily for this reason we do this, that if we keep those around us in their proper place, we feel better. That is, if we all live in the bottom of the barrel, and everyone else is in the bottom of the barrel, we're among equals. But lo betide the person who crawls out of the bottom of the barrel, or thinks they do, then we feel insecure. Now they've become more important than us, and we're left behind. Or if we're on the middle of the ladder of success, or financial success, or esteem, or physical attractiveness, put anything in there you want, and everyone else is on the middle of the ladder, then we're okay with that too. But woe to the person who thinks they're going to crawl higher up that ladder than us. Because now we feel insecure. We feel insecure. If everybody's like us, we're good. We're as good as everyone else. But boy, if someone else goes a little higher, we're threatened. Our security is threatened. I think that's the norm. We want to pigeonhole people such that we feel better about ourselves, our life, our lot. That's the norm, and that's what Jesus is talking about in John 4, that a prophet's not without honor except among those people who knows or think they know them best. Now, you can err on the other side. You can overestimate or give more than someone's due to someone. And I would say that most often that I see this, it's parents who do this with their children. It's parents who do this with their children who overappreciate them or put them up on a pedestal that they really don't belong on. Now, in a season of graduation, it's absolutely appropriate that we celebrate our children's or our friends or our siblings' accomplishments at the end of a school season, a graduation or the end of a school season or whatever. This is appropriate. This is something we should do. But oftentimes, we as parents can go far beyond that so that we make demigods of our own children. And our children are the smartest. Our child is the brightest, the best looking. And you know what? <clears throat> Parents like this, 
if someone else's child excels or exceeds at something, succeeds at something, they can't really rejoice much because, again, it gets back to this thing of personal insecurity. These, I'm, I'm focusing on parents, but any of us can do it. What we're doing is we feel better if somehow in our minds we are tied to the success of someone else. We are riding the coattails of our child or our friend or our spouse or our sibling. We're elevated because they're elevated. We feel successful because they're successful. And so we erect them on the little pillar in the little Greek hall of fame or whatever, and we kind of bow to them because in doing so, we feel better by association. We feel better by association. I think in both cases, this gets down to insecurity as the motivation for why we either esteem others too slightly or hold them up too highly. Now, I want to suggest this morning that the solution to either one of these errors, to either side of this coin, is twofold. The first being objective assessment. Objective assessment. Um, This is easier to say than it is to do. To be objective about yourself and objective about others. Listen to what Paul says about this in Romans 12, 3. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. We could say objective judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So the solution to thinking too highly or too lowly about ourselves, Paul says, is to be objective. It's to have sound judgment. If we take that same principle and apply it to others, it applies as well. The solution of thinking too highly or too lowly of others is also to have a sound judgment, to be objective about their strengths and weaknesses, the way God has gifted them or not gifted them, the way God has called them or not called them. It's to be objective. Objectivity is sometimes tough to come to because we all tend to see life through the prisms um, that we have on our own eyes. And uh, you know, some of us are nearsighted and some of us are farsighted. Some of us have rose glasses, some have whatever. I mean, the list is endless. So it's hard to be objective. It's hard to be objective, but it is possible. And to those who are going to think too high of themselves, Paul says, hey, Think soberly, think soundly, think objectively. This for yourself, this could be writing down a list. What are my strengths and my weaknesses? One of the best things I've done in the past and one of the things I'd encourage you to do, whether it's related to spiritual gifts or not, you can take a spiritual gifts test. And this helps you because objectively, you just sit down and fill out a form and say, what do you love to do? What are you passionate about? What do others compliment you about? What do they tell you they appreciate when you do? And it's this objective criteria by which you're able to assess how, in all likelihood, has God gifted you spiritually? How has he put you together? In what ways is it likely that he wants to use you? And one of these tests is a great way, great criteria, by which to say, okay, it looks like my strengths are over here and my weaknesses are here. It's probably likely that God wants me to work in these areas and I'm probably not going to be much in this area. But it's objective. Objectivity is the key. And one of the things you do is you ask other people for their feedback. If other people are willing to be objective, that can be quite helpful also. 
but we need to lose the subjective quality that we use to look through all of life. We need to be objective. We need to have what Paul calls sound judgment. The second thing that is helpful for us in appreciating others the way that we should, not too highly, not too lowly, is to have a real knowledge of our standing in Christ. Back to the motivation. Why do we esteem others too highly? Because somehow it makes us feel better. Why do we esteem others too lowly? Because somehow it makes us feel better. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church. and You've got to love the Corinthians because they're so much like us. And they had a real... They had lots of problems, but vanity and pride uh, were a couple of them, significantly so. And in Corinth, uh, Corinth would have been really a a vibrant, fun church to have been in or to have visited. There was a lot going on, and there was all kinds of miraculous gifts going on here too. But one of the problems was they wanted to know, in a Greek world, which was very vain and, and proud, this was a Roman world but a Greek culture, Um, They wanted to know how to be at the top of the ladder rungs. And so when this Christianity Christianity thing came along, they wanted to know how to do so within the Christian faith. And so what they were doing was they were attaching themselves to a Christian leader that they thought was the coolest, was the best, was the most articulate or the most intelligent or somehow the most powerful. So some of them were saying, I belong to Apollos, that great, great teacher. And others were saying, I belong to Peter, that guy who walked with Jesus. I follow him. And others were saying, well, I follow Paul, that great apostle who helped found the church at Corinth. So they were kind of divvying up leaders so that they would feel important by association. And this is what Paul says to them. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. Let no one boast in men. Why? Well, because all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. In this case, Paul says you guys aren't aiming high enough. You want to feel successful, so you claim one leader in the church. Well, guess what? You don't just get one leader, you get all of them. And you don't just get the leaders in the church, you get life and death. You get everyone and everything. You're looking for significance, you're looking way down here. And God has assigned your significance way up here. This isn't a problem. This isn't a problem. In fact, if you look throughout other New Testament texts and you say, what is my standing in Christ? Paul and John and Peter say elsewhere that Christians will rule with Christ, rule the universe through eternity. You'll sit on Christ's throne. You'll wear a royal crown. He'll give you a name that he and you only know, a pet name. It's not that we aim too high for our significance, it's that we aim too low. And because of that, we try to push other people down or think too highly of others because in doing so we feel better about ourselves. The truth is if we could simply apprehend what's already true of us in Christ, we'd lose the motive for pushing others down or pushing them up because we'd already feel okay about ourselves. We we would understand who we are in Christ 
And knowing that, we'd be good to go. We'd be good to go. So if we're secure in our standing right now, in time, and in eternity, then we're free to allow others to be who they are in Christ and do what God wants them to do. Let me read to you from C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. And if you haven't, um, if you're not a big C.S. Lewis fan, uh, or you haven't read much of his, The Weight of Glory, if you only read this little book, he, um, he is so astute and so insightful and so concisely so in these little, this is 15 pages long. There's two or three of these addresses, they're all brief, that he gave that are so insightful that I read them over and over again because he so well puts his thumb on the truth of a thing. Listen to what he says about us and each other. He says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. That is, we might sink our own vanity, so to speak, in our future glory. He says, It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor, the future glory of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. And those are people he's talking about who would be in hell, not in heaven. All day long, he says, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, those who won't be with Christ, or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn, We must play, but our merriment must be that of a kind, and that is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love, as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ 
the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. I love this because it puts it all in perspective. You and I, if we could see each other in our future state, he says we would be tempted to bow down and worship. See, and for now, we still bear the mortal. We bear our mortality, so we don't see the glory. But you remember John, when he goes to heaven and he sees an angel, and he wants to fall down and worship. And the angel doesn't have the glory that you and I will have. So Lewis is right on the mark. It's as if, if we could see down the road, he says we would gain this perspective now of the folks we're dealing with these incredibly glorious creatures in the future, or um, certainly in an unhappy state, those folks who, without Christ, of course, the horror is something we don't even want to contemplate. But we're not dealing, he says, with mere mortals. We're dealing with glorious creatures, and it's just that our glory hasn't yet been revealed. But uh, John says, when Christ is revealed, we'll be with him in glory. We'll see him because we'll be like him. That's our future. That's our future. And so it's those lenses we need to put on now. We need to see ourselves and each other as we are in Christ. We haven't arrived yet, but that's where we're going. And we're not just a brother or a sister or a friend or a husband or a child or whatever. We're a creature of glory with Christ himself within us, if we know Christ, Bound for glory. That's our future. That's our real identity. Well, if we look at each other through those prisms, we treat each other the way we should. We would treat each other the way we would want to be treated. We would treat each other the way our Father in heaven would look down and say, that's the way I want you to love each other. That's it. You've got it. It requires the objectivity. And you know, by the way, this is just humility. Biblical humility is not thinking too highly of yourself, nor is it putting yourself down. Biblical humility is having a right appraisal of who you are and how God has made you and the world he's called you to inhabit and work in. That's humility. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans 12. Sober judgment, an objective assessment of who you are and how God has gifted you. I think one of the most important things we can do for others and I've lost myself so many times here that, guys, as I've talked this morning, <laughs> I forget where I'm at and where I'm going. One of the best things we can do for each other is give ourselves permission, give each other permission to become the people God's making us and making others to be. Uh, CPLS had a guy here from Wheaton, I want to say this winter, and he touched on this subject. It wasn't the, the uh, center, center of his, his discussion, but he touched on this. If you haven't seen someone for a few years, whether it's a child who's grown up or an adult that you haven't seen for a while, your tendency in mind is to assume they're the same person they were the last time we saw them. Ask yourself this. Are you the same person you were the last time you saw them? You're probably not. But in our minds, when we see them, we assume they're the same person they were before. We're probably wrong. We need to give others permission, and it's not that this changes them, it changes us. We need to give others permission to change and to grow 
and to become the person in Christ God means them to be. That frees us from presuming that we know them or limiting them in our mind. You know, how often has someone you knew, maybe, that you grew up with, some insignificant little person that's now taken on some importance in the world around us? And maybe in your mind, you still think of them as little snotty so-and-so or little insignificant whoever because you don't want them to change in your mind. You want them to occupy for all eternity this little pigeonhole you created for them. Well, that's not reality. That's not the way any of us would want to be treated or thought of. We've got to be objective, and we've got to get an objectivity that comes from a security so that if I know my dad loves me and that he's determined to bless me in time and in eternity, and that he's got glories for me that haven't even entered my imagination yet, then I'm free not to pigeonhole you because I'm okay. I'm not insecure. I can say, God bless you to whatever God's doing in your life and because I know God's good and he's going to bless you and I know God's good and he's going to bless me and I'm good to go. I'm good to go. There's a movie we saw recently, and if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry because I'm going to talk about the end of the movie, but it's called Big Fish. I've ruined more stories for more people than I care to think about right here doing this very thing. Uh, Big Fish, it's a neat story, neat movie. In fact, I find that I've liked it more the more I've thought about it. It's a thoughtful movie. It's an out-of-the-box movie. It's not a normal, predictable film. The story is a son is estranged from his father. And he's estranged because all his life his dad was telling whoppers, fish stories. And Junior never knew where fact ended and fantasy began. And so he resented his dad. And that's where the movie begins. And Junior lives in Europe with his wife. He gets a call, dad's sick. In fact, dad's dying. So he comes back to the States to spend time with his dad before his death. And they get right back into it again. And Junior's telling Dad, I just wanted to know the way you really were. And Dad's telling him, I've always been only who I really was. What do you mean? And Dad's health declines. And the story primarily are the Dad's stories. They're the stories he's told Junior growing up. They're great stories, each in their own right. But at the end of the movie, Dad is dying in bed, in the hospital. He's dying in bed. And he tells Junior, tell me the story about how I die. And Junior says, Dad, you never told me that story. See, he's told his son all these stories. And how there's a story earlier in which Dad tells him, I looked in this woman's eyes and I saw my own death. And so I went through life blissful, peaceful, because I knew how I'd die and when. So I didn't fear anything. So he tells, tells Junior now in the hospital, tell me the story about how I die. And Junior says, well, Dad, you never told me that one. So Dad says, well, you tell me the story then. Lord, help me get through this day. So Junior tells his own story. He makes up his fish story for Dad. And he tells him, the story is, well, they escape the hospital. And they steal a car. Dad's old car that he had 30 years ago. They steal the car. And they're racing through town. And the giant in one of the stories stops traffic and turns a car over so they can get through. And they go down to the river. And uh, all the... Uh, I knew this had happened. <laughs> all, the, uh, 
all the characters in the dad's stories, they're, they're there at the river. And uh, uh, they, uh, they're celebrating his dad and uh, all the things they had shared together. And uh, it's kind of the celebration of who he was and now his, his own going, basically. And uh, um, his son says, Dad, it's just, you know, everybody's there and they're celebrating with you and, and it's great. And uh, he says, uh, Dad, it's just perfect. And as his dad's dying, he says, that's the story. The story of my life, it was just perfect. And uh, it struck me as I thought about the scene that Dad is the center of attention, and everybody else, they're, they're as joyful as Dad is. They're not the focus of attention in this scene, but see, they're all free to rejoice with Him. And in part, it's because they were part of His story. So they're celebrating Him, and they're also celebrating the interaction they had with Him. There's no, it's not that they're junior players in the choir. They're part of his story. They're part of the big fish story, the whoppers. They're part of everything. So when they celebrate him, it's not as people on the side of life. It's as, it's as players in the whole big thing. And I just thought that's the thing, that, that we should be able, just like that scene, where if God is honoring someone else, we should be free to honor them with him. And if God is elevating someone, we should be rejoicing with them. We're no less because God elevates them. We're no more if they're stuck in a hole. It was just a great, great scene. It made me ask the questions about, are you and I, are we giving each other permission to become the men and women in Christ God wants us to be? Or are we hindering it by trying to stick people, each other, in holes? Or are we elevating others unnecessarily, unhealthily, because by doing so, by association, we feel better about ourselves. Are we honoring the prophets among us? Or are we saying, we know you, you're no prophet? Which are we doing? We can celebrate with those around us. We can be glad when God blesses others. We can rejoice with others at their elevation because in the end, just like in that movie, we're celebrating who God is and who God made and what God is doing. That should liberate us. Objective, God, who am I? How have you made me? And what do you want me to do? And God, thanks that you love me fully and completely and that my future with you in time and in eternity is glorious. My fish story, my life, it's perfect then we can be objective. Then we can rejoice with those who rejoice. We can weep with those who weep. We can give permission to those around us to become the people God wants them to be. We can become the people God wants us to be. We won't have to say to the prophets among us, sorry, Junior, you know, not here. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck again by, uh, by the fact that truth brings liberation and joy and freedom. And Lord, I, I know that uh, though you've called us to the very heights of glory with yourself, we live like worms on the earth. And Lord, we do so because we haven't yet apprehended the truth 
of who we are in Christ. Father, thanks for making us your sons and daughters. Thanks that your spirit is alive and at work in each one of us, conforming us to Christ so that one day when we see him, we'll be fully like him inside and out. We'll be all that you ever meant us to be. And Father, while we share this brief time, these brief spans of life on earth, help us to view each other, as C.S. Lewis said, as these glorious creatures yet to be revealed, no mere mortals. And Lord, help us give each other permission. Help us to bless what you bless. Lord, help us to rejoice in what you do. Um, Give us the liberation, the freedom that belongs to the sons of God. Help us to honor those whom you honor, Lord. Thanks that our freedom comes from you. Thanks that our elevation, our gifts, our callings, our occupations, the people we know and associate with, all that's from you. Help us to bless, Lord, all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.